Here at Renew Energy Partners, climate change is very important to us, and so is beer. In every episode of the Green Beers podcast, we taste a beer together. We talk about the brewery and their sustainability practices. And then we talk about a topic relating to our work in decarbonizing buildings and mitigating climate change. Welcome to Green Beers. My name is Mike Savage, and I'm here with Charlie Lauren, Nathan Montgomery, and our special guest, Avi Garbo. Avi, hey, um, thanks for joining us. Guys. Pleasure. So, yeah, uh, yeah uh, Avi, do you want to tell us a little bit of uh, how you how you know the Renew team here? I think uh, you might go back longer than uh, any of us here. Well, I, I certainly go back to uh, the very late 80s when Charlie and I became fast, uh, fast friends at the University of Virginia Law School. So clearly, um, one of the best things that came out of three years in law school was meeting Charlie. Ditto, man. It's so good to see you. Avi and I have been friends since we were in our early to mid-20s, 30 years yeah. now. Younger, <laughs> shall we just say. Yeah. Let's well, just say it was a long time ago. I'm not, I'm not even sure Nathan was born yet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Here we are, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're aging each other that way. It's all good. That's, that's uh, all good. It takes a village. To, old, to, you know, to old friendships, old renewed friendships, we can uh, open our beers here. We're, we're today we have uh, Stone Brewing. Uh, headquartered in Escondido, California. We are drinking their Stone IPA. I'll, I'll have a little more to, to say about the brewery a little later, but for now, we'll, uh, we'll drink and learn a little yeah. bit more about Avi. Yeah. Yeah, Avi, did you open your beer? It's open. Excellent. And, so and, I'm pretty, and I'm pretty sure when Nathan gets into the details about the beer, what makes it most special is their East Coast base is in Virginia. So. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that either. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, this is the first beer that I'm having out of the uh, the Renew um, Renew Pine Glass, the Green Beers Pine Glass. Pretty excited about that. Nice plug, Mike. We have uh, Renew um, Green Beers Pint Glasses available um, in the merch store. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they're Sorry. pretty good looking. They have our new uh, Green Beers logo. Um, yeah, uh, we'll get back to ta uh, rating the beer at the end. Um, as you know, we have rated uh, now several dozen beers. Um, we're keeping a running top 10 list, and we'll see where Stone lands. Um, it's great to have you on. And uh, you've had such an interesting career. Avi and I were part of a diehard group uh, and in law school in the late 80s, early 90s that were passionate about environmental law when the options in the field were few generally focused on either representing uh, corporations fighting hazardous waste laws or working for state government. <laughs> um, but Av, you've crafted a fascinating career in um, environmental legal work, and uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about your story, where, where you went from law school and what brought you eventually to um, being the general counsel for EPA under President Obama, where uh, near and dear to our hearts, you were part of the fight to uh, regulate climate emissions, which we obviously want to talk about more as well. Yeah, I, I uh, was fortunate to kind of start my legal career when you headed up to Boston. I headed uh, just up the highway to D.C. and so started at the EPA um, 
in their Office of Enforcement, which was kind of a, a nascent group of enforcement lawyers, uh, about 100 strong in the agency at the time. Um, and I was doing uh, water enforcement for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was one of those folks that, um, you know, I kind of got antsy wherever I go. And so I was always looking for opportunities, ended up uh, taking an opportunity to work for um, what was then uh, the Clinton political appointee leading the Office of Enforcement. So got really great exposure to some nationwide environmental enforcement issues very, very early on in my career, um, including an opportunity to uh, do some time at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Virginia, which allowed me to kind of marry some interests of, of criminal prosecutions with environmental uh, law. That, of course, brought me uh, to the next phase in my career, late 90s now, where I joined the environmental crime section at the Justice Department. I um, forgot and- that because, you know, that was my second year um, in law school, uh, whatever we used to call it. My second year summer was in the crime section. Yeah, it was a yeah. great experience. Um, and so I was you know, part of there were about 30 or so federal prosecutors uh, really dedicated to working the environmental beat around the country, um, traveled quite a bit, I, I would say, would probably uh, still have been there, but for the fact that the travel was so substantial, and that's around the time where we started to have uh, some toddlers around the house, and it just became a little bit much to be on the road so much. Um, and so after a couple of years, um, you know, I, I tend to gloss over some stints in private practice, um, even though I had them. Um, but, you know, learned quite a bit uh, in the early 2000s, kind of in private practice, both at uh, a large uh, firm and then at a small plaintiff's side firm uh, doing a lot of litigation. Um, but, you know, all of this for me really led to uh, the elections in 2008. And I, I kind of joke with my wife, I said, like, that that's when I kind of reactivated and and really did everything I could to get consideration for an opportunity to work in the Obama administration. And, you know, suffice it to say, was very, very fortunate to get tapped first as the deputy general counsel there. And then in the second term to get uh, tapped by the president uh, to be the general counsel. And, and in today's political environment, I should say even more um, pleased that I actually got confirmed by the Senate. I'm not sure could happen again. So, and it wasn't it wasn't years before you were confirmed, right? I mean, it was within a, a well, reasonable it, amount of time. Yeah, yeah. I, mm. I should say that you know. Let me just say, uh, deals were struck, uh, and mm. and uh, and you know the the skids were greased a little bit, but that that worked out uh, quite well for me, and and had um, really the the two terms of my time in the Obama administration were probably the the pinnacle. Uh, of my career, notwithstanding some really interesting and fun stuff that succeeded that. Yeah, you know, uh, and uh, you, the administrators, when you were there, it was Gina McCarthy in the second term, right? And Lisa Jackson in the first term. Oh my gosh, yeah, Lisa Jackson, who was great. So you were yeah. you worked with some incredible administrators at EPA. I met Lisa Jackson, and I know Gina McCarthy a little bit because she's from Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Although you you don't have her accent, Charlie. I <laughs> know. I was going to try to imitate the accent. You can't. Yeah. You can't. You can't. Uh, you can't make that stuff up. She's a perfect well, representative, and she's an amazing advocate for climate and uh, for for fighting climate change, and always has been. You know um, that one. You know of all the things, and you described an amazing career of. You know you could talk 
uh, just about you know your time in the prosecute in the uh, crime section, all of that may, may making huge impact. But the one that's particularly salient to renew and to uh, those of uh, the, the, our listeners <laughs> who who uh, come to the podcast for uh, learning about the battle for climate change. You really were uh, at the point in putting together the first effort to regulate carbon emissions, um, you know, under the Clean Air Act. Uh, And just as background, uh, in 2009, the Supreme Court ruled that um, CO2 was a criteria pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Do I have that right off? 2007, Massachusetts. 2007 was just before the Correct. Right. So, meaning that under the, the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, CO2 was reg, could be regulated under the Clean Air Act. And so, uh, in your role at EPA, you, you all worked hard to put together the first regulations to regulate CO2 emissions. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, you know, how you, put, how you thought about that, how you put that together, and then uh, what, what ultimately happened. Yeah, I, I think it's worth, you know, for you and certainly for any listeners just to understand uh, um, that, you know, all of this started in the late 1990s with a petition by a number of environmental petitioners asking the agency to regulate. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of um, both interesting and somewhat sordid history about how uh, the Bush administration dealt with the aftermath of that and indeed dealt with the aftermath of the Mass v. EPA case. But suffice it to say, when uh, the Obama administration kind of came into, uh, into power and Lisa Jackson was at the helm at EPA, one of the very first things that I got involved in um, was not with the lawyers per se, but it was with the scientists. The first task that the agency had to do was to make what became known as the endangerment finding. And it really was uh, uh, bringing the best science to understand the impact that uh, climate pollutants were having on the health and welfare of all Americans. And having made that endangerment finding at the very beginning, that kicked off certain regulatory requirements under the Clean Air Act for the agency to act. So we then began to uh, work on regulations. But you know, again, just to give you and others a, a sense of, uh, despite the urgency of climate change, how long things took, we did the endangerment finding in either 09 or 2010. It was not until, I think, 2015 until EPA proposed its clean power plan and then finalized it a year later. So, you know, there's a lot that happened in between, but, um, you know, it, it took several years um, with extensive public comments, uh, I think more public comments uh, in, in the several millions than the agency had ever received up until that point in time. I mean, comments came in in song and dance and poetry, and you know, Senator McConnell came and gave his comments, and you know, in a public space at EPA, it was a very, very interesting uh, experience in developing that rule. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, just the just the the process you describe of of putting together the endangerment finding um is so interesting i think you know when when you work at a company like renew which didn't you know we didn't have an industry in 2010 we're now part of a decarbonization industry that's trying to meet carbon decarbonization goals for the country you know one company at a time but 
we sort of take the impacts for granted that it's a, a, a challenge for humanity, but it's interesting to recognize that, you know, the, the EPA, um, with that court case in hand, did the work with the scientists of sitting down and saying, let's put on paper, you know, what this means for people to have rising carbon emissions. And the question for the uninformed, can we get the endangerment findings, you know, at a, at a fifth grade level? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, um, it's, it, they looked at six kind of car, um, climate pollutants. So CO2 is the most obvious, but methane and, and I think three or four others. And the question at hand really was, does the combination of these pollutants when admitted into the air pose, you know, significant endangerment to people's health, um, you know, or, or well-being? And so, you know, you can imagine um, uh, both from a public health lens and economic lens, uh, and a variety of other lenses, the determination ultimately was, yes, it did. And, and having made that determination about a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, that really does kind of trigger an agency like EPA to act to protect people's health. Absolutely. That, that is very much transformative. But, you know, the, the, the history of, of the, the Clean Power Plan, um, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because, of course, ultimately, um, it was never implemented. So, you know, all of the work that we did um, to put in place the very first rules regulating carbon emissions from the largest uh, stationary sources in the country had a lot to do with uh, changes at those power plants. Um, but ultimately, it was um, never a regulation that was implemented, you know, around the country. And as I, I think, you know, maybe you or others know, in what had been, I think, the first of its kind, the Supreme Court voted to stay the implementation of, of the Clean Power Plan even before the D.C. Circuit had even heard challenges or ruled on challenges to that. Um, I, didn't re I didn't remember that. That's amazing. Without, without precedent. And by the way, yeah. they did that. Um, that vote to stay the implementation of the Clean Power Plan was a most likely um, Justice Scalia's last vote before he passed away wow. and had, you know, who knows, uh, of course, had things uh, been differently. Um, and that and was then, a five to four? Was that five to four? I believe it was. And then just to make things even more intriguing and in kind of the politics of the Clean Power Plan, um, the case was before the D.C. Circuit. Uh, and of course, the agency and the Obama administration felt very uh, secure and confident that it was um, a legal rule would be upheld. And so we were awaiting what the panel of jurists from the D.C. Circuit would hear that case. Um, and around that point in time, President Obama nominated Eric Garland to be a justice on the Supreme Court. Well, we all know, of course, uh, what happened there. Uh, Judge Garland never got a vote in the U.S. Senate. But the fact that he was nominated, he was a judge in the D.C. Circuit, and in fact, the chief judge there meant that he had to recuse himself from the, the Clean Power Plant case pending before the court. And as a result, um, Justice Kavanaugh, who I believe was on that panel and others, ended up um, basically not ruling and running out the clock until the next administration came into power and began to reverse it. So That's you get a amazing. sense of the the politics of of uh of the clean power plan it's quite incredible
That's amazing. I did not know the Kavanaugh part either. So the, yeah, the, the politics run deep here. And as you say, I do remember from talking to you at the time, you all, one of the reasons I think it took so long, correct me if I'm wrong, Abby, is that you all were being very, very careful to craft a set of regulations that were virtually unassailable uh, in front of the D.C. Circuit. There's a whole process for reviewing regulations. Um, they always get challenged uh, if they're in any way politically implicated, as these were. Um, But there are ways to be, you know, uh, careful, deeply careful and and prevent, um, make challenges really difficult, which is where you thought you were. Um, Yeah, I I would say, um, you know, nothing the agency does is is truly unassailable. Um, and in fact, as you note, anything of consequence uh, typically gets uh, objected to by one side or the other, if not both. Um, but, you know, we thought that, that it ought to have its day in court. Uh, and it was yeah. certainly uh, a regulation that was well thought out and highly defensible. But, well, it's but interesting. It, the, the timeline you described, there are two things that happened, both having, the sim, having a similar dynamic. One was that Scalia died Merrick Garland was nominated, but the the Senate refused to hear him his nomination for something like eleven months, which is unprecedented. Uh, and then similarly, it sounds like the D.C. Circuit ran out the clock on this, which allowed then the next administration, the Trump administration, to pull back those regulations before they had been ruled on. So in that, both cases, the the clock sort of got ran out on these regs. Yeah, all true, you know, but you can ask yourself kind of to what end uh, was the clean power plant given that fate? And I, I went, I had the opportunity in 20, uh, I think it was 2015, 2016 to um, be part of a couple delegations to Beijing uh, and be part of international uh, climate negotiations. And when we were first over there having these discussions, John Podesta, others were there um, with me. I should say I with them. Um, the the clean power plan was just a proposal, but it had enough heft in the international community that EPA and the United States was actually serious about this. That in many ways, without the proposed clean power plan, or for that matter, its final and un- unimplemented uh, plan, uh, it was among many drivers that that uh, got us to the Paris Climate Accords, um, you know, at the end of that administration. So, you know, the momentum uh, that it carried, the seriousness with which um, that rulemaking was uh, was viewed in the international community had enormous benefits, I think, for um, for the international community to kind of coalesce around became the Paris Accords. That's really cool. That's a very cool insight off um, because. The progress in those international um, climate negotiations is is often dictated by whether the the um, you know emerging economies and China feel that the U.S. is doing its part, and the U.S. has to show up with an, um, a serious proposal to to create momentum at those international agreements. So that's a really interesting point. Um, and then ultimately. Um, you know, this was specifically targeted towards the major utilities, which are the largest emitters, right, of CO2. Yeah, um, the, the largest yeah. stationary emitters of CO2 as opposed right. to the, right, right. Right. And it seems, uh, well, t- 
I want to get on to the to the your career since, and Mike Mike is going to talk more about your career at Patagonia because, of course, now we work with corporate America to help implement their carbon goals, and uh, in many ways, the entire context for fighting uh, climate change has shifted from um, an emphasis on uh, st state or local, state or federal regulations, and more towards. Um, binding commitments by the private sector that are enhanced by or encouraged by things like carbon roadmaps at the state level or carbon em emissions limits at the municipal level. But it's interesting how much the sort of the battlefield, if you will, for fighting climate change has shifted from 2020 to to now. Sorry, from 2016 to now. You know, and uh, and you're you're career at Patagonia sort of reflects that change in some ways. Yeah, and I, I would just say that, uh, you know, I, I attribute that change in large measure to um, what I consider to be uh, the, the disastrous presidency of President Trump. Um, and, right. you know, be, before then, there was at least I had a sense that, um, you know, kind of big battles like this were to be waged primarily, um, you know, within government. Uh, and to be solved by government, you know, through regulation right. and other efforts. And, uh, you know, it felt uh, very much like um, kind of a, a allied uh, corporations, you know, for the most part, were on the sidelines kind of observing what the government could or might do with respect to um, climate action. That all changed dramatically uh, in the Trump years when it became abundantly clear uh, through presidential action um, that we could we could no longer count on the federal government to lead us uh, to address this kind of climate crisis, and that's when you had the "We are still in" campaign, and all of a sudden, you know, it felt like um, uh, an awakening amongst corporate America that we have to pick up the slack. States have to pick up the slack. Mayors need to pick up the slack, but importantly, corporations need to pick up the slack. And and I got to see that as you. Um, you know, uh, mentioned, you know, from the perch of Patagonia uh, for a number of years. But, but you know, that, that was the change. And although, uh, you know, I, I, if I could um, wish anything, I would wish that we did not have uh, the Trump years uh, before us. Um, you know, any silver lining that I can find is the fact that, that I, you know, I think we all recognize now, Charlie, as you've alluded to, that, that you need an all of the above strategy, that you can't be reliant on um, you know, government just to do this. By the same token, I think you need strong government regulation and, uh, and incentives uh, married with um, you know, corporate action and private sector commitment. Yeah, I mean, as evidenced by the impact of things like the Inflation Reduction Act on our industry, which has created serious tailwinds for our projects, made them more investable, um, made them more... Um, attractive to customers because we can pass the benefits of things like the increased tax credits through and the pricing, which make these projects more uh, more likely to to get the green light from our customers. So, it, absolutely, the ideal world is one in which government leads and corp governments lead and corporations sign up to do their part. But you were there in the at Patagonia in the Trump years, which must have been an interesting time. Yeah, and Patagonia was a world leader in sustainability, I would say, you know, for, for a long period of time. And how, how was that story going over there and watching them sort of react to 
regulations or, or really, you know, be the, the leader in the industry when it comes to setting up sustainable commitments? Yeah, I mean, you know, Patagonia is, um, it's an extraordinary company um, for a number of reasons. I mean, I, I think that the commitment at Patagonia to, um, to saving the home planet and to environmental protection um, is, is truly genuine. And as much as I think folks may see from the outside that it looks like it's walking the walk, the level of commitment and time and attention being paid um, at all levels of the company, executive on down to you know issues of of, uh, of conservation, of environmental protection, nowadays of uh, more equity, um, they're they're really genuine and quite solid. And, and I, you know, th- they could do that for a number of reasons. I think first and foremost, they could do it because they had um, the rock solid commitment of of their private owners, the Schwinnard family. And, you know, I certainly had a conversation with uh, Yvonne Schwinnard one time, and, and he remarked that, um, you know, e- even when they tell people to uh, not buy a jacket and, and, and consume less, um, you know, kind of karma hits uh, and, you know, the, the company does well. But the notion that you can be a strong environmental advocate and a profitable company um, is really uh, the best experiment that Patagonia is, is on right now. Do you think there's any lessons that can be taken away from Patagonia's corporate leadership internally that that's driving the outside of just leadership saying this is important or tying it to the brand is there anything that that you saw that just as a corporate measure a process or, or takeaway that uh, that other corporates uh, could or should be doing well w- one thing that I greatly admire Patagonia for is they're not afraid and and you know there, there are um, probably daily examples at Patagonia of things that either they are doing or more importantly, things that they are publicly saying um, that, shall we say, rub um, potential customers the wrong way. If you read the comments on their social media feed, you certainly would find you know, volumes of people who are cheering them on. But you'll find ample evidence of, of folks who say, you know, stay in your lane. Um, you know, I'm never going to buy from you again. Uh, you know, et cetera. And I think, you know, many company executives, if they were presented with those negative comments, uh, would hold their marketing team, you know, their, their, their feet to the fire uh, and, and, and say this is, you know, kind of uh, dampening the prospects of profitability. And, and frankly, Patagonia doesn't care. Uh, you know, their mission is to save the home planet. They take their lumps, um, you know, with the work that they do. And I think that's quite admirable. And ultimately, it's worked out well. And my my sense, um, you know, not kind of borne by uh, any kind of particular business research, is that if more companies stood by their principles um, and just kind of, you know, kind of spoke, uh, if you will, from the corporate heart about, um, you know, issues of great importance like this, they would be okay. And if you look at, um, you know, rankings of uh, kind of the most reputable companies, not the companies necessarily that you agree with, but the ones whose reputation and principle, um, you know, is is uh, really remarkable. Patagonia is at the top, um, and they get voted, you know, that way in red states and blue states too, because people recognize it. So I, you know, I I I do wish that other companies were less afraid. And I'll give you, you know, Michael, one quick example which ties into the clean power plan. When I um, joined the uh, when I joined Patagonia as their kind of first ever environmental advocate, 
Um, it was at a time when the Trump administration, of course, was rolling back almost everything that I had worked so hard in eight years in the Obama administration. And uh, at the time, the rollback of the Clean Power Plan was then before the D.C. Circuit. Um, and Patagonia ended up filing an amicus brief uh, in, in front of the Supreme Court, or is D.C. Circuit or Supreme Court, I can't recall, you know, siding with the strong standards in the Clean Power Plan and being able to demonstrate to the courts, to the court of public opinion, that private companies, employers, job creators actually are in favor of a strong climate protection um, so that it's not just, you know, the kind of green enviros on that side. It's actually businesses taking a stand in favor of environmental protection. That's a powerful thing. And, and we were joined at Patagonia by Columbia, but there were several, Columbia, you know, the sportswear kind of company. There were many other companies out there um, who shied away from kind of signing on to a brief that was going to go in support of the clean power plan. And, and again, I think more companies can take that extra step um, and understand that corporate advocacy on behalf of you know, the public and the environment um, you know, is something that will ultimately redound to the benefit of their business. You know, that, those are the changes I'd like to see happen. That's fascinating because we do see that the companies that um, have uh, signed on for our projects are typically have uh, courageous corporate leadership. Um, our model is more and more accepted, and, and so there's, there's less of a first mover challenge. But it's the brave CEO, CFOs who recognize that this is um, a win-win for them and are willing to, to stand behind a new approach that, that will take a leap on this. And it's also the ones that are willing to stand by their principles on the carbon commitments. What's interesting about our work now, Avin, you, you, know, you see it from all your, the perspectives of all the positions you've had, is that the, the, the climate commitments that major companies are making uh, they're being forced to live by in a new way, whether it's because of disclosure or the sense that there will be disclosure requirements, whether it's boards or um, uh, institutional investors, employees. There's, a, there's enough pressure that these commitments are now feel more binding than they were even three or four years ago. Um, but again, it takes courage to make those commitments and then live by them. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, what one, a one quick question. Yeah, it was a pleasure to to hear your story. I just had, uh, I, and we're going to get into the to beer in just a minute here. I just had one thought: what you're, whether it's with Patagonia, certainly your work with the EPA, right? Where we're talking about um, stories with a lot of nuance, and particularly, um, you know, you're, it was a divisive political climate, especially at the end of the Obama administration into the Trump administration, and and you know, issues passing. Uh, acts that you were working on for years and years, but what I hear from you also is hope, right? Saying that it, like, you could you could have explained that story, saying, "Oh, you know, we did all this work and it was all for naught." But what I hear is, no, that work that we did with the EPA was completely worth it, right? It was able to affect foreign policy, and you know, and look at Patagonia and these other members of the private sector that have stepped up. So I guess just from your point of view. Uh, doing the work that you do and have done, how do you maintain that hope and what gives you that hope in this industry, even when there are setbacks? So um, 
I, I will try to end my response, Nathan, on an optimistic note. Um, but but you know, I, I just want to make sure we all kind of level set a, a right on the gravity of, of the problem. I mean, we're, we're still, as uh, though I don't have the, the stats in front of me, I think um, looking at some record-setting years in terms of you know oil and gas development, we're still dealing with um, expansion of coal-fired power plants in Southeast Asia, for example. Um, you know, we're we're, we're still uh, dealing with a tremendous amount of global investment in oil and, and gas infrastructure that is going to, in effect, bake in carbon emissions for decades to come. So, you know, I, I, the political will, um, I, I think, kind of vacillates a little bit. Um, and and unfortunately, you know, there's still uh, significant financing of, of fossil fuel related projects that I think are ultimately going to be kind of harmful to our children's health and, and their children's health. You know, all that being said, you know, when you ask kind of, uh, either kind of why why should there be hope or why carry on it's because there's no other alternative i mean you know you talk about um you know there there's only kind of one planet uh it, it's funny uh i i reflect that that the patagonia uh, kind of motto is you know we're in business to save our home planet um and, and the word home is meant to make very clear that we're not in business to save mars like this is the only place we've got um and, Does it also and, suggest the thought that there may be other home planets, or is it really I, just? Yeah, I I think it's Yvonne's way of saying he really doesn't care about any other planets. He's very <laughs> focused on uh, on Mother Earth, you know. Uh, but but the point is is that we we just don't have any options to solving this. Um, and you know, I think the commitment of companies like yours, the commitment of your customers who are kind of embracing you know a low to zero carbon uh, economy and way of doing business. It's the only feasible option we've got if we want to tell our kids and our grandkids that we really, um, you know, met the moment. So, um, you know, just like you all, I'm absolutely committed, whether it's in government, in, uh, in a nonprofit or in the private sector, to really figure out partnerships and solutions that are going to drive, uh, drive us to where we need to be. Thanks, Av. And thanks for the note of both um, determination and also, you know, a realistic assessment of the fact that we we are we continue to lose ground if and and that political will is also required yeah um so uh before we rate our beer we like to learn a little bit more about the um the sort of uh beer tastes of our guests um and and if you can cast yourself back to the uh to northern virginia where you grew up did you grow up in northern virginia or in the district i can't remember in virginia yeah, in Virginia. So cast yourself yeah. back to the to whatever era it was, um, and and see if you can remember the very first beer you ever had. Probably Schlitz. Schlitz, yeah. <laughs> Mine was Natty Bow, but you would have had okay. it if you just come come south a little to, to or north a little bit to Baltimore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <clears throat> and how about your favorite beer off? Uh, it is uh, it is uh, Maine Brewing Company's Lunch IPA. Yeah, that's a good one. It's quite high on a on a scorecard here. Yeah, yeah I think they're in the top five. Yeah. Maine Beer Company's number one for us currently, so we're we're in oh, agreement there. Nice, <laughs> How do you like that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Our All guest right. has um, excellent taste. <laughs> <laughs> and one, one, uh, one other question: uh, If you could have any 
uh, if you have a drink with anybody, dead or alive, or more importantly, a beer, who would it be? Like, you mean other than Charlie? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that good answer. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, 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 I drink beer with a lot of different people, Michael. I mean, certainly one of my all-time heroes is Martin Luther King Jr. I don't, I don't know how that beer conversation would go, but uh, just to spend a little bit of time next to him would be uh, pretty, pretty awesome. I love that. Uh, we we have now. We also, in addition to keeping our beer scorecard, we're building the um, renew beer garden with all of the people that we've uh, named that we want to have a beer with. <laughs> the guest before you uh, selected, I think it was was it Odysseus? Oh yeah, Odysseus. Yeah. 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 So we have a we have an eclectic mix here. Right. Right. Nina Simone, who's a jazz singer, who we've all become very fond of. Uh, so it's a good group, and I, and right. I we, we welcome Martin Luther King Jr. to the Renew Beer good. Garden. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll drink with Nina and Odysseus too. So just count me in. <laughs> Perfect, and of course, Perfect. All right, so scorecard time. Um, right. So just a quick rundown here. Again, this is we're drinking Stone IPA from Stone Brewing. This was uh, they've been around for twenty five years, and this was this was brewed. Uh, for their first anniversary, so it is one of their one of their original beers. It's been around for a while. Um, as Avi did mention, right? They they do have a brewery in Richmond, Virginia. It is LEED certified. Uh, they also have um, some California locations that use solar photovoltaics uh, to reduce emissions. Uh, they have some battery storage. They have plenty of solar panels um, and generally use mostly renewable resources. They also champion sustainable land management and water conservation, as well as having uh, humane and local sources for, uh, in terms of getting their, sourcing their hops and other, other um, ingredients from farms. So it does seem like uh, it's a pretty high up there in terms of sustainability efforts, which of course, as People who work in sustainability, we appreciate. Um, but yeah, we'd love to just, we, first rating is usually at one through 10. Uh, it's from taste. And you can add up to a full point for sustainability, um, which I've, I guess I'm speaking right now. So I might as well just say, I'm going to give this um, seven on taste and I'm going to bump it up to an eight for the sustainability point that that'll be my rating here that's a solid score yeah that, that is that is um i'll I, I jump in here so uh i i'm drinking the uh the west coast style ipa it's a 6.9 percent uh the bottle gives me some great hints on flavor notes lemon peel tropical and dank i don't quite <laughs> know what what that means dang uh, dang that's but great it's, uh, is that a, is yeah. that positive for you, Mike? Do you like a dank beer? I, I, I think you can be too much dank. Um, this is uh, it's a light dankness, I would say. Um, <laughs> so but it's I, a balanced yeah. dankness. So that's good. A balance, yeah, nice balanced dankness. Uh, it is vegan, uh, but actually, I to follow up on the sustainability. I, I did meet somebody from Stone, and I asked them to send me a cheat sheet, and they. They are serious. I mean, they have within minutes. I got this uh, cheat sheet on their eco initiatives. Um, they they hire goats to graze their their land at the Richmond Brewery, 
That's a first. Uh, That's a first yeah. in all of our breweries. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got another. They use their their waste product as a methanol offset for fighting the nitrification of the public-owned treatment centers. So that's a, that's a first that I've, I've heard of that. Uh, but yeah, it seems like a, a very strong, sustainable company here. And beer itself, for a 6.9, I think it's uh, pretty amazing. Um, I would give it a 7, 8 with the, uh, the 1 point for the sustainability. So you give them an 8, 7 plus eight. 1? Uh, no, seven seven point eight. So I'm going to give them an, wow. an eight eight. So yeah. Bob, you got to understand, Mike is a very hard grader. So that's that may yeah. be that's a very high score from Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in terms of crushability, that's it's it's uh, it's quite strong. So I would give it a three, and um, maybe a three and a half. But uh, I I shouldn't drive after. Um, <laughs> you want to do that one. at home, Mike? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good crushability score. Uh, yeah. yeah, I um. I would give it also, I would give it a seven. I'm not as partial to West Coast IPAs, but it's a nice beer. It's definitely drinkable, crisp. And uh, I'm going to give it a point for sustainability if for no other reason than, than the goats. So I'm going to give it an eight overall. There we go. So, Mike, Michael, you were at an 8.8 total? Yeah. All right. Well, it's just a damn good IPA. Um, you guys can talk about all the dank notes and stuff like that. Uh, and and because I know how things work on the prices, right? I'm going to give it uh, a 7.9 with a point to 8.9. So I own I own the space between 8.9 and 10 right now. That extra bump is the fact that they chose Richmond over Asheville, North Carolina for their East Coast expansion. Yeah, so spoken like a true Virginia native. There we go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, with the 8.9, I think they're going to do well. Nathan's going to yeah. run the um, – can you run the scores quickly? And Yeah, so that puts them at an 8.43. It does not break the top five, but it does put it close. So they're in our top six or seven there or something like yeah, that? Yeah, certainly top ten, I could say. Top ten for sure. Feels fair to me. Yeah. I yeah. think it's a great taste in beer, and uh, you know the conversation was pretty good too. Yeah, and Av, they're no main lunch, right? So you wouldn't have wanted to knock lunch off of the pedestal. No, here. no, yeah. I left. I left room. So you left room. <laughs> absolutely for your yeah. for your next visit. <laughs> yeah, or or for the next IPA from Stone. We'll see. There you go. Yeah. Well, Av, what a well. pleasure. Great to have you. Thanks, everyone. Good. Until next time. Thanks. Thanks Enjoyed it. Take care. You bet. Green Beers is brought to you by Renew Energy Partners, your partner in building decarbonization. Decarbonizing your building is good for the earth and it's a smart business move, but it's complicated and it can cost you a lot of money. Our goal is to decarbonize your building while saving you money. So all of those retrofits pay for themselves. Learn more at renewep.com.